You're listening to Byzantine Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture in collaboration with the Melkite Eparchy of Newton. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and director of the Institute and host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Uh, Welcome back to all of our participants for our Sunday Gospel Reflection in the Byzantine Lectionary. Of course, it's Pentecost, and this is the great uh, Feast of Feasts as we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The, The biblical texts which are given to us this Sunday in the church are John chapter 7. Write this down if you have a pen and paper. John chapter 7, verse 37, through chapter 8, verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 37, through chapter 8, verse 12 of the Gospel of John. And Acts of the Apostles, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. So we're going to get out our Bibles. And again, for our new podcast participants, We don't do Bible studies at the Institute of Catholic Culture without Bibles. I have heard that in some places around the church, uh, this happens, but not at the Institute of Catholic Culture. So let's get out our Bibles, uh, dust them off, and uh, get started here taking a look at the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 37. Now on the last, the great day of the feast... Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Anyone who believes in me, as the scripture says, from within him there shall flow rivers of living water. I'm going to stop for just a second, Father, because this is a great example of why we're doing this study together. We oftentimes hear this text, and we just kind of float right over it. It's nice kind of poetic language. But there's a lot more here, isn't there, Father, than just poetic language. Absolutely. It's very rich. There's a lot of imagery here from the Old Testament, especially. We're going to have a chance to jump into that and, uh, and, and take a look at all of this beautiful imagery. He said this, however, of the Spirit, whom they who believe in him were to receive. For the Spirit had not yet been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. Some of the crowd, therefore, when they had heard these words, said, This is truly the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. Some, however, said, Can the Christ come from Galilee? Does not the scripture say that it is of the offspring of David and from Bethlehem, the village where David lived, that the Christ is to come? So there arose a division among the crowd because of him, and some of them wanted to seize him, but no one laid hands on him. The attendants therefore came to the chief priests and the Pharisees and said to them, Why have you not brought him? The attendants answered, Never has has man spoken as this man. The Pharisees then answered them, Have you also been fooled? Has any one of the rulers believed in him, or any of the Pharisees? But the crowd which does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, the man who had come to him at night, who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man unless it first gives him a hearing and knows what he does? They answered and said to him, Are you also a Galilean? Search and see that Out of Galilee arises no prophet. And again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me does not walk in darkness, but will have the light 
of life. Father, there's, there's, a, there's a lot here going on in the Gospel of John. Um, uh, we have this, this text is kind of bookended by Jesus' words about the living water, uh, about the light of the world. We want to take a look into the Old Testament background here, but it's important also that these texts are read in the context of the gospel in which they're written, not just in the context of the entire scriptures. Yes, I'm going to take a look at that, but in the context of the gospel in order to understand the back and forth that's taking place, because oftentimes we're almost like parachuted in and dropped in. So give us that context first in the gospel of John in which this uh, story is taking place. Okay, so yeah, so we were, we're in the Gospel of John, which tells us about a three-year ministry of Jesus. And we know it's about three years somewhere in there because we hear about the three times that the Feast of Passover occurs. Once very early, and then, uh, and then now in chapter 6, the previous chapter of this, is the second one. And then we hear about, of course, the Passover that we all know about when he will die and rise from the dead at the end of the story. And so here in chapter 7, we're in the latter part of his ministry. We were after the second Passover and heading towards the final one, the third one. And then here also in chapter 7, we learn, as he is in a lot of the passages in this gospel, he's in Jerusalem now. And it's the Feast of, of, Pas- uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, or huts, or sukkot, depending on how you want to call it. Uh, this was an eight-day feast, an, an octave. They would celebrate this feast in the Old Testament over a period of eight days. And during these eight days for this Feast of Tabernacles, the priest would go down to the Spring of Gihon, which you and I have visited that spot many times, the, the beginning of Hezekiah's tunnel there, where the water uh, would, would gush out from underneath the wall, originally going down into the Kidron Valley, but because of Hezekiah's work, it was rerouted. But that spring, that, that head of the spring was still there, and it would go down there and get the water from that spot, which was just at the foot of the of the Temple Mount itself, and bring it up in great celebration and singing of the Psalms. They would come up to the, to the temple, and then they would pour out the water from Gihon on the side of the altar there in the temple. And this was, as far as biblical scholars are able to discern, an attempt to liturgically celebrate in a certain sense, and maybe with a hope of jump-starting, almost like a prayer, hoping they could maybe jump-start liturgically or remind God of his promise of the vision that Ezekiel had. In, in Ezekiel's book, in chapter 47, we hear about this beautiful image of water gushing out from underneath the, the, the altar and the temple. Let's, why, don't we, why don't we take a look there at uh, Ezekiel so okay. that we have the proper context. You said it's Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. So guys, again, get out your Bibles if you haven't gotten them out yet. And let's take a look together at Ezekiel chapter 47. Father, is that in the, uh, the, the, the Old Testament or the New Testament? I think it's in the Old. That was a joke for all of our podcast listeners. Joining us for the first time. Yeah, that's an Old Testament prophet. Go ahead and turn there, Ezekiel chapter 47. So, Father, we'll take a look here at chapter 47, starting with, uh, with verse 1, and how far down you want to go here. 
Oh, basically, the verse nine or so is the right. most right. important imagery. Then, okay, start with verse one. Then he brought me back to the door of the temple, and behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. For the temple faced east, and the water was flowing down from below the south end of the threshold, the temple of the threshold of the temple south of the altar. Then he brought me out of the way of the north gate and led me round on the outside to the outer gate that faces toward the east. And the water was coming out from the south side, going on eastward with a line in his hand. The man measured a thousand cubits and then led me through the water, and it was ankle deep. Again, he measured a thousand and led me through the water. And it was knee deep. Again, he measured a thousand water, and it was up to my loins. Again, he measured a thousand, and it was the river that I could not pass through, for the water had risen. It was deep enough to swim in a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led me back along the bank of the river. As I went back, I saw upon the bank of the river very many trees on the one side and on the other. And he said to me, this water flows toward the eastern region and goes down into Araba. And when it enters the stagnant waters of the sea, the water will become fresh. And whenever the river goes, wherever the river goes, every living creature that swarms will live. And there will be very many fish. For this water goes there, that the waters of the sea may become fresh. So everything will live where the river goes. Yeah, so what we're seeing there is... Ezekiel telling the people of his time that when the kingdom is restored, in a little context of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is writing during the exilic period. He's, he's in exile in Babylon with the Babylon exiles. And the temple has been destroyed. Jerusalem, the temple has been destroyed. And so Ezekiel in the second half of his book is showing that there will be a restoration, there will be a return from exile, there will be a, re a rebuilding of Jerusalem, a rebuilding of the temple, and the glory cloud returning. And, and then we get this climactic passage where he tells us that when the glory cloud has re-entered the new temple, the new temple of the new Jerusalem that will be rebuilt, all of this, that then this water will gush forth from underneath the temple, from the foundation stone, and water all of the land, water everybody, all of the nations, everything will become fresh and renewed, like a new Eden. Uh, the image is intended, though it's a little maybe strange to us, sounds like a flood, but the image is intended to remind the, those who hear of this vision of the Exodus story. When the people of Israel came out of Egypt, they went to Mount Sinai, and in order to get them actually to the mountain, after they had crossed the Red Sea, standing there in the midst of the wilderness and the, 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 the land of clay, it says, this is in chapter 17 of the book of Exodus, it says that God told Moses to take some of the elders, he says, take them with you and go to the foot of the mountain. So Moses and some of the elders as witnesses journey away from the camp that does not want to move from where they are. They're just, they're sitting there on the edge of the Red Sea. And they journey all the way down to the, to the tip of the Sinai Peninsula, to the foot of the mountain. And God tells him to strike a rock at the foot of the mountain. And from Sinai then, from this rock at the foot of the mountain, flows running water. A stream of water gushes out of the bottom of the mountain, the foot of the mountain, and starts to flow back all the way 
to where the people were encamped. And in Hebrew, flowing water or running water, as we would say in English, that's an idiom, you know, running water. It sounds kind of funny if you think about it. Does water really run? You know, so, but we mean moving when we say running. And so in Hebrew, what they would say was they would call any water that was running was moving. They called it living water because in the Hebrew mind, something was moving. It was alive. Makes sense. So water that is stagnant was just water. But water that was running, water that was moving or flowing like a spring, they referred to as living water. And that living water, that running water flowed then in the stream, rivers of living water flowed from Sinai all the way to the encampment to the people. And then the people then followed the living water, that running water, that stream, all the way to its head, that is the foot of Mount Sinai. And then once they're there at the foot of the mountain, having followed that water to the, to the to the mountain. They wouldn't have gone there on their own. Who's going to journey across a wilderness with, you know, thousands of animals and people, millions? How do you want to count this? Where are they going to go without water and food? So they have now a source of water that leads them to the mountain where God wanted them to be so that he could, once they were at the mountain, give them his word, his law. And then they say, we hear this in Exodus 19 and 24, all that the Lord has said we will do. So they receive the law once they're at Mount Sinai, the word of God. And then we hear about an image that's very important for our passage today of God coming to tabernacle among them. They begin to get the direction for the building of the tabernacle in the very next chapter, in chapter 25. And after a little stumbling with the golden calf incident, they eventually build, by the time you get to the end of the book of Exodus, they build this tabernacle at Sinai. And then we hear in chapter 40 of the book of Exodus of the glory cloud coming to dwell among them. And so what Ezekiel is telling them is that in the new kingdom, in the, in the kingdom that will be restored, in the new Jerusalem, the new temple, that will not only be, as he described earlier in the book, this new temple, the new Jerusalem, where the glory cloud will dwell again, but he shows that it, this time, Jerusalem, the mountain, will become, Mount Zion will become this place from which the Spirit of God will flow like living water out to all the nations and eventually accomplish what Abraham was originally called for in the first place, and that is to be the one through whom, or his descendants through whom all the nations would be blessed. Well, Father, with that background from Ezekiel, which really is a background from Exodus were uh, well situated for our kind of application to Pentecost. We're going to have to do a two-step here. We go back to John, to chapter 7, and take a look now at how Pentecost fits into this. There's another aspect here that I want to just bring up before we come back to the New Testament, and that is this, all of this imagery from Exodus, of course, sounds a lot like the Garden of Eden. Uh, in fact, as I was reading there, I was thinking of the book of Revelation, of those, that river with the trees uh, planted, the tree of life planted on either side. And of course, that imagery is borrowed from, from para, as paradise imagery, restoration imagery. So this whole idea, just to kind of break through uh, both uh, the, the Exodus story, to break through the Feast of Tabernacles, and even through Pentecost, is to realize that all of this, whenever God appears and brings his people back to him, Paradise is restored. 
So there's all of this Eden imagery of the living water flowing out of the throne of God, the place, the source of life. And it's for this reason that as the prophets looked forward to the coming of the Messiah, they looked forward to the restoration of kind of this moment, this moment on Sinai, or even this moment in Noah's Ark, or this moment of the return from Babylon, the, the, the re return from Babylon, or all of these moments in which the covenant is restored between God and man become uh, the background or types of foreshadowings of what's going to take place when the Messiah comes, namely the restoration of the way things are supposed to be. And the way things are supposed to be is the restoration of paradise itself. So we always have this beautiful imagery, number one, of living water, which we read in the, the book of Genesis. We have the, the, uh, the restoration of the presence of God among his people again. Uh, the restoration of, the uh, as we have in the Feast of Tabernacles, the garden growing. The people of God remember this moment uh, in salvation history in this feast by building huts of leafy uh, branches on the roofs of their houses and living in those kind of man-made gardens, if you will, for the eight days of the feast while the, while the priests were pouring the water onto the altar in the temple and the water began flowing out again, paradise was restored. And then looking ahead, they said, this is the way it's going to be when the Messiah comes. I encourage our participants to take a look at Zechariah chapter 13 and 14 uh, for a little bit of further reading on this and this idea that uh, uh, this is the way the restoration is going to take place. In fact, the Jews believed that when the Messiah came, all other feast days would fall away. And this feast day, the feast of God tabernacling among his people, God living among his people, and the restoration of paradise would be the one feast which remains. There's so much to talk about here, uh, but obviously it would take us um, too far afield, um, but, uh, but a, a very valuable study for us. Jesus now is that word of God, the same word given on uh, Mount Sinai. He is the one who is the source of the living water. And just as uh, that, um, the, the fire which led the people of God through the darkness of the wilderness during, uh, during uh, the time of the Exodus, during this Feast of Tabernacles, torches were set up in Jerusalem. And it's, it, it is said that during these eight days of the feast, the whole of the city was light uh, for even in day, daytime and nighttime, there was no darkness, which uh, imagery, which again, we pick up in the book of, of Revelation. Now Jesus draws all men to himself as the source of living water, as he brought Israel to Mount Sinai to sustain them in life. And now we can begin to understand, understand what is going to be given here on Pentecost when that Holy Spirit is given to God's people. The new law is given to God's people. And the apostles and all of us come together to receive that gift with all of this background that you're mentioning, Father, Ezekiel, Exodus, Paradise, all of it comes together in a sense in this Feast of Feasts of Pentecost in which the resurrection of Christ, the ascension of the Lord, all of it is fulfilled now. So let's take a look at this in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 1 through 11, Acts Chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. When the days of Pentecost 
were ending. The disciples were all together in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven of a violent wind blowing, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them separate tongues of fire, and they, and they settled upon each one of them, and all were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in foreign tongues as the Holy Spirit granted them to speak. Now there were staying in Jerusalem devout Jews from every nation under heaven, and when this sound occurred, a great crowd gathered, and they were astonished, because each one heard them speak in his own language. And all of them, amazed and wondering, were saying to each other, Look, are not all of these men who are speaking Galileans? How then have all of us heard our, our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes, Elamites, inhabitants of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and all the parts of Libya around Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, Jews also, and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we have heard them speaking in our own language of the wonderful works of God. Father, let's jump into this, uh, this text by speaking a little bit about this Feast of Pentecost. Well, okay, so the Feast of Pentecost, you know, a lot of times I think as Christians we think of some says, you know, what about the Feast of Pentecost? And we immediately think of our liturgical celebration of the feast. But what we need to do when we, when we read this passage or when we celebrate the feast is we need to be thinking also, very importantly, of the Old Testament background. And so in the Old Testament, the Israelites had, as they came out of Egypt, they come to Mount Sinai, they're given the Torah. And in the Torah, they're given three major feasts for their annual celebration. And uh, these three feasts, they're mentioned in Exodus 23 and Deuteronomy 16. Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. We've already talked a little bit about Tabernacles and its importance. Pentecost, the feast that sits between Passover and Tabernacles, was a, a feast that reminded them of the reception of the law at Mount Sinai. So they just, the first Passover, of course, was that Passover as they came out of Egypt. And then 50 days later, which is what Pentecost comes from in English, Pentecost Emera in the Greek, the 50th day, the 50th day from Passover. Now they're celebrating each year how God brought them from Egypt and brought them to Mount Sinai and gave them the law, his word. And they said at in chapter 24, after he'd revealed the law and Moses had, you know, told them the law, they said, all that the Lord has said we will do. And the law, of course, is love the Lord your God with your whole heart, with your whole mind, right? I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. But what did they do, of course, shortly after that? They went and built a golden calf, right? They broke the very law, the heart of it all. They, they turned from the one living God who had revealed himself to them and they broke that and, and went and worshipped the god Apis, one of the Egyptian gods. But God promised them, even though they had broken his law, he promised them that eventually there would be a restoration of all things. A, rich, a restoration of the original plan as you were talking about there. We were looking at Ezekiel earlier. And so even back in the time of Moses, God promised in Deuteronomy chapter 10, Deuteronomy chapter 30, that the law, though it was exterior, it was an exterior gift on stone tablets, that someday the, the law of God would be interior. It would be given to them 
in the tablets of their heart. And so Moses says to them in Deuteronomy 30, circumcise your hearts, O Israel. And in, in chapter 30 of that book, he tells them that, that God will someday restore them and, and he will circumcise their hearts. He'll put his law within them. The, the prophets like Jeremiah and Ezekiel in the exilic period speak of a restoration like this coming. As well, we, I'm just going to jump in right there because I, I, I've got this. I'll just read it real quick. quick. And if you want to just jot it down and do a little study on your own, go back here to look at this in Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming. Whenever, by the way, whenever you hear the days are coming, read the Messiah is coming, with the, the, the Messianic age. Okay, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their, with their fathers when I took them from the, by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt by covenant which they broke, though I was their husband, says the Lord. But this covenant which I will make with them, the house of Israel, after those days, says the Lord, I will put my law within them, I will write it upon their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. This is, as you're saying, this is a constant theme in the Old Testament, looking forward to the new. And of course, we're looking for the new, we're looking forward to the, the time of the church, the age of the church. So yeah, so that's what, that's what we're seeing here. Luke, uh, in his, in Acts of the Apostles, is showing us then that, that these things are all coming now to fulfillment. Right? The vision of Jeremiah that the law would be in their hearts. The Ezekiel chapter 36, you had mentioned earlier uh, of that imagery there. Even in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, we hear about the land becoming like Eden again. Right? So there's this, this very rich layers of imagery here. And so now that the Holy Spirit has been given, a lot of times we think of the Pentecost, because we don't know that Old Testament background, we think of it as simply the gift of the Spirit. But what we need to do is think about why Luke tells us this story and why this happens in salvation history in the context of the Feast of Pentecost. The original Pentecost was the gift of the law on stone tablets. But now they're being given the gift of the law on the tablets of their heart. The word of God is coming to dwell within them by the power of the Spirit. So the Spirit descends upon them, not simply so they can just have the Spirit now, but the Spirit descends upon them so that they can become Jesus. The, so that the word of God can come and dwell in their flesh and the tablets of their hearts. And so that they can become that, that the new Sinai or the new Jerusalem, the new temple, which Jesus is. So that from them can flow rivers of living water, like Jesus had said was going to happen earlier. You know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about the end of the Gospel of Matthew, the, the text we read at every baptism of uh, Jesus says, I will remain with you always. There at the very moment of the ascension, he says, I'll remain with you always. And this, this, is, this is this beautiful gift. You know, the feast of the resurrection, that of, of the ascension, that of Pentecost is not something for, for Jesus alone. The whole reason, it's no great mystery that God rose from the dead, that death could not contain him. It's no great mystery that the, the, the word of God, who was never separated from the Father, uh, is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. There's no great mystery uh, that, he is, that he, he, he is who he is and therefore gives the gift of his own life in Pentecost. The great mystery is that all of these things now take place for us, uh, with us. He, he brings our human nature out of the tomb. He ascends and brings our, uh, our human nature to the throne of God himself and in a sense turns us around so that we can now do 
what we were meant to do from the very beginning, that is be remade in his image and likeness, to, to live the life which God lives, which is the life of love, and pour out from us, as God has poured out his life in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity, to pour out through us upon those around us the gift of God's life, which we have received. It is so important as we enter into this feast that we do not do so from the outside. Looking at the icons of the apostles, there's the tongues of fire happening over there 2,000 years ago. No, the gift of Pentecost is a gift into which we are incorporated, into which we open our hearts as the Lord pours out his life into us. I was reading a, a, a more modern theologian recently. He said this, the holy mysteries carry on. The, 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 so in a sense, the, in the divine liturgy, where we will be this Sunday celebrating, hearing these texts read, the, carry on in our midst the great works of God in the Old and in the New Testament. For example, the flood, the passion, and baptism show us the same divine activity as carried about in three different eras of sacred history. And these three phases of God's action are all ordered to the judgment at the end of time. This Feast of Pentecost incorporates us into this great mystery of restoration of God's original plan. And that original plan is nothing other than the church, in which the created order is divinized through the tilling and keeping of this world, in which we take the things of this world, bread and wine and water and oil, and they are filled up once again with God's life, as we are also filled up on this great feast of Pentecost. To Christ our God be glory both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Byzantine Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.